they rendered a decision that not only declared unconstitutional these devastating aspects of Act 13, but very literally breathed legal, legal life into this long ignored environmental rights amendment and restored to the people of Pennsylvania their constitutional right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle podcast and to our very last episode for 2019. What a year it's been with ups and downs for the sustainability movement left, right and center. I'm Joy and today's guest knows a thing or two about ups, downs and big wins, suit style. I'm talking to Maya K. Van Russen, the author, Delaware Riverkeeper and the founder of the US-based Green Amendment movement, which is inspiring communities across the USA to secure their own constitutional right to a healthy environment by pursuing green amendments in every state constitution and ultimately at the federal level. Quite the ambitious goal. We cover all this and more in this fascinating conversation. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Now, without further ado, I give you Maya K. Van Ross. Welcome to our podcast, Maya. Let's start with a little bit more about you. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Um, I was actually born in India, oh. but we moved to the U.S. Um, when I was very young. And so I spent uh, most of my life here in the, in the United States. Wow. And whereabouts exactly in the United States? Just a, a little bit outside of Philadelphia, actually, in the Delaware River watershed. And you'll hear that I've spent most of my professional career, actually all of my professional career, <laughs> fighting for the beautiful Delaware River. And so I actually have grown up in the watershed and spent um, all my youth playing in a beautiful little stream known as Icing Creek, which eventually drains to a tributary that drains to the Delaware. You know, it's funny, it's, it seems to be every time we have a guest on our podcast, there was always this sort of link back to spending time in nature and exposure to nature at a very young age. It seems that people who care about the environment tend to have been lucky enough to have that exposure. And I read an article about you where you share the story of, of your mother picking up leaves on the side of the road for her compost pile. And I just thought, wow, that's how awesome is it to have had that exposure from such a young age? Well, that was the beautiful thing about my, my parents, um, particularly my mom. They weren't environmental advocates the way I am, right, sort of speaking up and speaking out the, the, all the time. But they really lived what they believed. And so whether it was standing up for justice for others because somebody was budging, you know, in the, in the shopping line or because they saw, you know, somebody mistreating somebody else. Um, on the street, you know, they would stand in in defense and do what was right. And when it came to the environment, um, we just really lived lightly on the earth. So before people were talking about cloth bags, we always used um, cloth bags for shopping. Uh, we always, you know, mom and dad always took their coffee in the morning in their coffee mug. Then we didn't have these reusable closed coffee mugs. So t sometimes the coffee would spill, you know, on them on their way to work. But they really believed that it was very important to find ways to live lightly on the earth. My father was British and my mom was Dutch. And so I think also in, in Europe, there there has always been a greater consciousness about um about not overusing and about not creating unnecessary waste. And so they very much brought that, um, that belief system into my young life. And then also here in America, as you said, going around co collecting the leaves people were throwing out for trash. Um, you know, my mom would go and collect them to, to use the leaves in the garden as compost. But also people tended to package those leaves in these big, black plastic trash bags. Um, and so after mom emptied the leaves out of the bags, those big plastic trash bags got second life um, in our lives um, in, in any number of ways. So they were also reused. That's awesome. It, it must have been, I guess, quite frustrating to have had that sort of awakening, if you like, so early on and then seen, I guess, over like the last 20 to 30 years, the huge increase in wasteful culture we've managed to develop as humans it, you know having grown up with that very efficient way of doing things it would have been quite frustrating I imagine it, it was and it still is um, still even is. now right when there's a greater awakening for for using reusable bags and reusable cups I was just in the in a, a shop the other day and I was still shocked <laughs> at the 
number of people that were using once used throwaway plastic bags, you know, and putting one or two items in there and then just having these, um, you know, these, uh, these baskets filled with or shopping carts filled with plastic throwaway bags with just a few items in each. And it's just quite shocking that even in, even now, at this time when there is a greater level of, of awakening in many people, it's still shocking to me at how, how many others just are not thinking about the ramifications of what they are doing day to day. So it's really a, it's really a, a mixed bag, right? There's this beautiful awakening and, and people trying to do things better, but then there's this also sadness when you see so many who don't yet realize or recognize the value and importance of being more careful in how we live here on this earth and, and um, you know, and how we treat the environment. Yeah, totally. There's a, a lot more work to do, that's for sure. And tell us a little bit about your career. I understand that you, you studied law. A after um, university, I, I got a law degree. Um, I got two layers of law degrees. And I, but I went, to, I went to law school not because I wanted to be a lawyer. I went to law school because I wanted to be a better environmental advocate. Oh, cool. And okay. I realized pretty quickly that if you wanted to be a really effective advocate, that knowledge of the law was very powerful and beneficial. So that's why I chose to go to law school, and it, it certainly has served me well. That's so interesting. You, you went into it with that mindset right from the beginning. What were some of the very early projects or cases that you worked on before you started um, at the Delaware Riverkeeper? Well, after I graduated law school, I, I got a two-year position um, that was part of the second law degree that I got which was actually working as the staff attorney in the law clinic that used to represent my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, in litigation. Ah, okay. So my um, very first job was working for my organization, but not as the Delaware Riverkeeper and the head of the organization, as, you know, as an attorney um, trying to fight the good fight through the, through the legal system while I was getting this this second law degree. And um, interesting uh, enough, one of the most important cases that I was working on then, we continue to work on now. And that's trying to get a nuclear power plant to change their operations so that they can reduce the number of fish that they they kill every year. It's called the Salem Nuclear Generating Station. And they kill over 14 billion Delaware River fish, eggs, and larvae every year because of how they choose to operate their facility. But they could, if they would change their operations to a more modern technology, they could actually reduce those fish kills by over 95%. And so I have very literally spent the over 25 years trying to get the company and trying to get the government to force the company to use that better technology that will serve the energy goals of the company, but at the same time, reduce that devastating impact on the aquatic life of the Delaware River. Gosh, it just sounds like such a no-brainer. But let, let's step it back a second and explain to the listeners what the Delaware Riverkeeper Network actually is. It's been such a huge part of your life. Can you give us an overview of the organizations and perhaps for the international listeners, why the Delaware River is so important? There are sort of two pieces to the Delaware Keeper Network. There's the Delaware River Keeper, which is a person, and I am the person that has the honor of bearing the title of being the Delaware River Keeper. And my job description is to be the voice of the Delaware River and to make sure that the needs of the of the Delaware are heard and understood and given the highest priority in any place based or decision making process where something is happening that could impact the Delaware River, including all of the tributaries that eventually drain to it. But of course, protecting a, a river as large as the Delaware, the Delaware is 330 miles long, and its watershed includes portions of four states, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. I mean, it's a very large system with a very large watershed, and so that's certainly not the job of one person, right? That's the job of a community. Yeah. And so I have an organization called the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, which is that community. I have 20 staff members. I have attorneys and scientists and advocates and members throughout the 13,539 square miles that 
make up the Delaware River watershed that help me advocate for um, our beautiful Delaware River and its tributaries. We use advocacy, we use litigation, um, and we use good science and grassroots activism to really make sure that the, the needs of our, our river and our communities, all the communities that depend upon healthy waterways, that, that they are given the voice uh, in every place and space that we can. And speaking of these communities, that's a this river touches a lot of people. I understand that it it supplies water to fifteen million people. Yes, it is. It is actually um, we believe the largest surface water drinking water supply on the East Coast. Um, and there are over fifteen million people in the four states of the Delaware River watershed that depend upon the river for for their drinking water supply. But they also depend upon the river for recreation. We have people who come from all over the world because we've got these magnificent fisheries. We've got um, the shad runs. The shad is a fish that goes up the Delaware River every sp spring. We have the largest spawning population of horseshoe crabs in the world um, that come to the Delaware Bay and spawn on the beaches of the Delaware Bay in order to, um, one, procreate for themselves, but also to, to put eggs on the bay beaches that are an important source of uh, food for migratory shorebirds that um, fly through the region every spring. We are part of the Atlantic Flyway, so we've got beautiful raptors and bald eagles that come to the beautiful Delaware River, you know, and people that come too to enjoy this this beautiful nature. Um, so the Delaware River is a, is a vital source of drinking water. It's a vital source of ecology and beauty, right, that, to, that enriches people's lives. But it also is the, the source of tremendous economic um, prosperity in the region because it supports jobs and, and businesses of all kinds. In fact, I think it's about $22 billion of annual economic benefit mm. that are generated by our by by our healthy Delaware River. Yeah, absolutely worth protecting. So now the, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network has been running for a very impressive 30 plus years, which is not a small amount of time. So no doubt you've had some ups and downs along the way, but perhaps focusing on the ups, what achievements have you been most proud of when you look back at the ne network's history and your role as the, as the Riverkeeper? Oh my goodness, I could go on for a, a long time. Even our even our losses, right? There's a little bit of a win because you've brought people together and you've gotten them active to to fight for their communities and to fight for nature. And that activism inevitably goes on um, and into other other battles for for the environment and other battles for the community. So even when we lose, we win. But I think you know some of our most um, important victories, uh, the 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 Delaware River, we, way back um, in the early 90s, we achieved a special level of protection for the Delaware River, a special designation and a special level of protection called Special Protection Waters. And, and really, the Delaware River, because of the work of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, is the, has the longest stretch of river in the nation that is protected by these highest standards under the nation's Clean Water Act, something called anti-degradation protection. What it means is we have a, a, over 190 miles of river that are, are so clean and healthy that they are worthy of this special higher level of designation and protection called special protection waters. Um, and these regulations and protections and this special designation that we achieved um, starting in the early 90s when you fast forward to um, about uh, later in the later 2000s, around, two, around 2008, 2009, 2010, when the drilling and fracking industry tried to come into the Delaware River watershed to frack shale for gas, we were able to use that special designation to get in place a protection from drilling and fracking anywhere within the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed. And in 10, 2010, we got a moratorium against drilling and fracking put in place that holds to this day. And so while other water, waterways and other communities in other parts of Pennsylvania and other parts of the United States of America are really being devastated by the fracking for gas from shale industry, um, in the Delaware River watershed, we've been able to to maintain 
protection from that industry in order to protect people's drinking water supplies and all that beautiful ecology that's so vitally important, and all the people, the health and the safety of all the people that live here. So those are two very, very important successes that I'm so, so proud of. I read about your um, the, the the case uh, Robinson Township versus the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Was that the case that you were just referring to? No, that's that a, a it's a thing. different case. But that is another incredible victory. And so I was going to save <laughs> save that one, knowing that we would lead into it. But that really is a is a is a great segue. Part of the Delaware River watershed is in Pennsylvania, right? But much of Pennsylvania is not in the Delaware River watershed. It's in two other watersheds, the Susquehanna and the Ohio River watershed. So only the portion of Pennsylvania that's within the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed, um, only there are the communities protected from drilling and fracking. Outside of the watershed in central and western Pennsylvania, the fracking industry has really been devastating environments and devastating communities. And the laws in the United States of America are really written in such a way that we think about the environment after the fact, when the big job is how do we manage and permit pollution and degradation? You don't really have the opportunity to, to the best of your ability, prevent that kind of harm. And so in Pennsylvania, because that is the way the environmental protection laws primarily operate, the drilling and the fracking industry and the laws were pretty weak when it came to that in- industry. They had a lot, there were a lot of exceptions and exemptions from even the bare minimum environmental protections that might have been, been in place to address the issues, the problems that they caused for the water, for the air, for the forest, for the soil and the wetlands and the people. But for the frackers, they wanted to find a way to be able to frack even more in Pennsylvania. And so they, the industry very literally wrote for themselves a piece of legislation that the Pennsylvania legislature passed in 2012 that was going to make it even easier for the fracking industry. It gave them the power of eminent domain in certain circumstances to take people's property rights and be able to force the storage of their explosive gas underneath people's properties, whether or not they wanted it there. Um, they gave them exemptions from even the minimal environmental protection standards that, that applied to them in a number of instances. It mandated that drilling and fracking operations be allowed to be placed in the heart of residential communities, including operating well pads with these big toxic wastewater pet pits being allowed to be placed as close as 300 feet from people's homes. Um, and the local town board could do nothing to prevent it. Um, and there was more. There was more. And so we knew at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network that while we had certainly protected our watershed from the drilling and fracking industry, we didn't think that was good enough. We had gone on to try to help other communities and other watersheds protect themselves. And so when this devastating fracking law was passed, we knew that we had to find a way to challenge it. And so we teamed up with seven towns that also wanted to challenge the Act 13 law, um, and we brought a legal case. Now, the seven towns, they brought us a set of legal arguments to this joint venture, but the legal argument that, that I, as the Delaware Riverkeeper, and my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, brought to this joint venture was the claim that these provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging should be declared unconstitutional under the Pennsylvania state constitution. Because in the constitution, in the Bill of Rights section of the constitution, there was language that recognized and protected the inalienable rights of all the people of Pennsylvania to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. Now, while this this um, this provision, what I now call a green amendment, but then was called an environmental rights amendment, while that environmental rights amendment had been part of Pennsylvania's constitution for over 40 years, since 1971, very early on, the Pennsylvania courts had really misinterpreted, mis- misapplied um, that section of the Constitution, declared it to be just a statement of policy and really not to have any meaningful legal strength. But we 
felt that we, with this Act 13, it was such an incredible abusive overreach when it came to the fracking industry and the ramifications for the environment. We felt like we might be in this moment in time that if we brought this legal argument in reliance on this long ignored environmental rights amendment, maybe we could get the courts, the judges, to revisit that 40 plus years of precedent and actually reverse themselves and breathe legal life back into that long ignored environmental rights amendment. And long story short, that's exactly what happened. We had a very conservative court led by a very conservative chief justice. Um, and that court and that chief justice realized and recognized how important environmental protection was for all the people of Pennsylvania and all the people of the nation and the world. And they rendered a decision that not only declared unconstitutional these devastating aspects of Act 13, but very literally breathed legal, legal life into this long ignored environmental rights amendment and restored to the people of Pennsylvania their constitutional right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. So it was just an amazing victory all the way around that came from the hard work of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Wow, that is quite an incredible story. That must have been super satisfying. And I understand that that was not just a landmark case for the states and for the country, but for you personally. And this led you into this idea of, of building this Green Amendment movement. Could you tell us a bit about this, this Green Amendment movement and, and, and how it's come about and where you've gone with it so far? So that, that um, decision, uh, I know it's called Robinson, people refer to it as Robinson Township because we let one of the townships put their name first in the legal caption because we thought the judges would be more inclined to be, to, to listen to the, to the towns versus the environmentalists. Although <laughs> in the end, they pick the argument in large part of the environmentalists. <laughs> um, but still, Robinson Township tends to get the credit. But I call it the Robinson Township Delaware Riverkeeper Network case. Nice. Um, but anyway, in the in the wake of that case, that case was decided in, in December of 2013. And after we achieved that victory, we started doing the work through our advocacy and through more litigation of defining what it means to have a constitutional right to a healthy environment and then defending that right, you know, in other fracking contexts and in other environmental contexts in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But as we were doing this work, you know, I was really thinking about the power and the importance of what we had achieved. I mean, you hear people all the time talk about how we, the people, have the right to clean water and clean air. But the fact of the matter is, unless you have a constitutional right here in the United States of America, at least, that, that recognizes and protects in the Bill of Rights section of your Constitution, that right to clean water and clean air, you don't really have it as a right. You don't have it as a legal right. You might have it as, as an inalienable right. You might have it as a right in your heart, but you, there's no legal strength behind it. Here in the U.S., if you want to truly have a right to a healthy environment, you need that constitutional recognition and protection. And it's also like a powerful mindset, right? People now, it's like, I don't just have a right in my heart to clean water, but I have a right in my constitution. And it's very empowering. So I started to, to look at all of the state constitutions across the United States of America and came to find out that there was only one other state that had a constitutional provision of this kind. It's the state of Montana that no other state in, in the United States of America had this Bill of Rights constitutional recognition to clean water, clean air, a healthy environment. And I now add to that a stable, a stable climate. And so I started to try to spread the word. I started to try to go to other communities and other states, tell them about what, ha what we had accomplished in Pennsylvania and how legally important this was to have this constitutional Green Amendment in the Bill of Rights section of your Constitution. Um, and people were very interested and excited when they would hear me speak. But the truth is, if they were on the in the western part of, of, of the U.S., you know, why on earth would they care to hear this lady from the Delaware River who's on the East Coast? 
they didn't, people didn't really want to hear from me. Um, so I decided I needed a bigger platform. And so I wrote a book. I wrote a book to talk to people about the environment, environmental protection, how U.S. laws are failing us when it comes to the environment, but, but also how this constitutional Green Amendment approach could just be bring transformational change to our legal system here in the U.S. Um, the book was published about two years ago now, and um, people have been really excited about the message, calling more and more for help about how do we pursue a Green Amendment in our state. And so I've now, in addition to being the Delaware Riverkeeper, I've also started a new national organization and movement called Green Amendments for the Generations, which is all about going into other states to try to inspire them to want to pursue a Green Amendment for their state and then help them actually actually do it. Um, and ultimately, I want to have a Green Amendment in the U.S. federal constitution, but I believe that the best place to start is with our state constitutions because it's more accessible. Um, for people to be able to change their state constitution, it's powerful and it's meaningful to get a state green amendment. And also, if you want to have a pass a um, an amendment to the federal constitution, you need three quarters of the state to support it. Right. So <laughs> the best way to go about accomplishing that is like let's start with the states first, get them understanding the power and importance of green amendments, get them to add green amendments to their constitutions, and get the benefit of them. And then we will be well primed to get a federal green amendment so we can also hold our federal government officials more accountable when um, they attack our environment and our environmental rights. So what exactly are the steps a state would need to take to get a green amendment added to their constitution? The most important thing to get a green amendment anywhere is you really need people of that state to rise up and seek it, and secure it, and advocate for it, and press for it, and see the power and importance. It really, no matter what the pathway is, and whether it requires legislators or not, you really need the power of the people and the excitement of the people behind it to make it happen. And how do they do that? What is the best way for for people to get involved and make that happen? Is there an organized Green Amendment network where people can join, or are there, are there marches, are there you know, uh, declarations or uh, petitions people can sign? Yeah. How does it work? So I want all of those things. And, uh-huh. and through Green Amendments for the Generations, that's my goal. All You know, everything you talked about. But really what I say to people is I'm, um, since we started this Green Amendment movement, we actually have Green Amendment proposals in four states already, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and West Virginia. They're not passed, and it's going to take a lot of work. But they've, they've been proposed, and, and we're getting people organized around them. And I've got at least half a dozen other states where there's um, active campaigns developing, states like um, New Mexico, where I just was this past week, and the state of Delaware, the state of Maine, and others. Um, and what I say to people, the, the first thing we have to do is we have to get people to understand how our current system of environmental protection laws is failing us. Um, and to realize and recognize that we need something more, something more powerful for environmental protection. And that something more powerful is the constitutional recognition of the right to a healthy environment. Um, a recognition, a legal recognition that would protect environmental rights as powerfully as we protect in this country the rights to free speech and freedom of religion, due process rights. You know, we now would be giving the same legal standing to environmental rights. But people need to understand that because it's a real mind shift. People here assume we have environmental protection laws. We have regulators. We have legislators. Our environment surely is protected. I know people tell me all the time I have the right to clean water, so surely it must be so. And they don't actually realize that they don't have a right because it's not in the Constitution. And they don't realize that our system of laws is more focused on accepting and managing pollution and degradation as some sort of foregone conclusion rather than preventing it. So I encourage people, truthfully, to call me. Go to um, forthegenerations.org. That's our website. 
um, and there's a way to get in touch with me there. Get in touch, and I will start to work with you and your state. That means coming and helping to educate people um, about Green Amendment, helping to figure out what is the process for your state, helping to figure out what would be the best strategy in your state for advancing a Green Amendment, and what should your state Green Amendment look like? Because every state is unique. They have unique characteristics, right? Unique um, goals and personalities. And we want to make sure that every Green Amendment reflects the personalities of that state, because you're more likely to get support for it then. And so I just really work in, in a hands-on way. And and some straight states, right, we are having um, rallies and press conferences. There are Usually there are petitions and sign-on letters. Um, but we really have to work together as a coalition to figure out what's right for each state. And I think that all starts with getting educated about Green Amendments and then working with us at Green Amendments for the Generations to figure out the appropriate next steps for, for your community. And truthfully, you know, sometimes the Green Amendments that are advancing in a state have started because an organization was excited and asked me to come speak and we started to work together. Sometimes somebody heard me on a podcast, at least half of my state, somebody heard me on a podcast like this and they picked up the phone afterwards and they called me. And I and we started to talk and we developed a strategy to do the outreach necessary and, and to get the Green Amendment movement going there. So it just requires one person who cares and we can figure it out and get it going. Very cool. Now to to your point of the most important thing is that folks need to understand exactly what the problem is here and why they're not protected by their local environmental laws. Is there a good example that you could use to try and illustrate that difference, especially for international listeners as well as local listeners who don't, who might not really understand the difference between the local laws and the power of the Constitution? Frankly, I think most countries are pretty similar in, in how their system of environmental laws work, at least this idea of, of accepting pollution and degradation as a foregone conclusion and then just figuring out how to how to permitted. I mean, each system's a little bit different, but I, I tend to think that that mindset um, is sadly pretty universal. And so we need to figure out how in every country, what's the best way to turn it around? But most countries have a constitution. Um, and, you know, the constitution um, here in the U.S. is, whether it's in the state or at the federal level, that is sort of the umbrella that overarches, um, covers over all the other laws, right? Every other law is under underneath the Constitution. Um, and so if you have a law like a, a, a Clean Water Act or a Clean Streams Law that um, says that if you want to discharge pollution into a waterway, you need to come to the state regulatory agency and get a permit that gives you permission to do that. Um, you can go through that process and the regulator can decide whether or not the regulations of the state entitle you to that permit. Um, and then you can get that permit and, and, and without a constitution, as long as you've been able to demonstrate that you comply with that regulation, you get to get that permit and start discharging your pollution into the local waterway or into the air or onto the land or to cut down the forest or, or fill in the wetlands. But if you have a constitution that guarantees the right of the people to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment, then before that regulatory agency can just go ahead and grant that permit to discharge pollution, um, they have to, even though they've complied with the regulations, whatever the regulation says, they have to do an extra look. And they have to look at the science, and they have to look at the facts, and they have to look at the actual impact of that proposed pollution discharge in that way, in that location, and make a determination about whether allowing that discharge would violate the constitutional right of the local people to clean water. And if they can't demonstrate that they will meet that higher goal of the Constitution, then it doesn't matter that the laws and the regulations would seem to entitle that discharger 
to a pollution permit, the government can't grant the permission because their first duty, their first duty is to honor the constitutional rights of all the people in their state. So I'm not sure if that helps. It's a, yeah, no, it is a little bit of a complicated system. It but is, yeah. And hopefully. I guess maybe a, using an extremely simplified example, you could say that the, the local environmental laws will say, okay, you can pollute a little bit as long as you stick within our regulations, but the pollution is still happening. Whereas the Constitution would say you're not allowed to pollute at all if it violates the right to clean water or clean air. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That and that's exactly what happens. Is the is you know the the legislators write a write a law. Let's say they you know they again it could be called the Clean Streams Law. It could be called the Clean Air Act. You know every state and certainly at the federal government do it differently. But primarily these laws are written to describe the ways developers and dischargers and industrial operators and drillers and miners can and should be allowed to go about the business of their industrial operations, their development, you know, their their energy creation. And then after that law is written, there are regulations which, which give more detail, um, more refinement on how they are allowed to go about and undertake that activity. Um, and in the regulations, you know, it pretty much says, look, you're, you're, you're allowed to discharge, um, you know, X amount of toxin B and toxin C. And if you can show that you're only going to discharge at those levels, then you get the permit that very literally gives you permission to do that discharge. And as you said, but what the Constitution does is it's that backstop. It's that overarching thing. And it says, no, 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 you don't automatically get permission to pollute. Not if you, not if doing so is going to infringe on the right of the people to their, to their healthy environment. Even if you think about Act 13, right? That, that drilling and fracking law that I talked about. That was all about how are we going to allow drilling and fracking to advance more easily in the, in the, in the state of Pennsylvania. It was all about how we want fracking to happen. And so we're going to just presume that pollution and degradation and devastation is something that we have to accept and allow to happen. And so let's just figure out how to manage it. Um, and that's not the right way to think about our environment and our actions and activities on the earth. We have to think about how can we undertake energy creation in a way that creates the energy and protects the environment at the same time? How can we undertake our development projects of our schools and our homes and our businesses in a way that protects the environment at the same time? And if you have a constitutional obligation to protect the rights of the people to the healthy environment, then when government decision makers are thinking about all those those actions and activities and questions, the the an upfront part of their decision must be, okay, we have to think about preventing harm to the environment as part of figuring out how we're going to do development, industry, energy creation. We don't start with the assumption that pollution and degradation must be accepted and must be allowed to happen. And let's just figure out how much devastation we're going to inflict on people. A constitutional right just dramatically changes the whole conversation from management of pollution and degradation to one that's focused on prevention first. You know, it, it actually has made me understand the world better, this discussion, because you can actually see how with all of our ingenuity and innovation and capability as humans, we've got ourselves into this mess because we've been allowed to, to behave badly to get an outcome that serves a sort of financial outcome. Um, whereas we could have innovated right from the beginning, say taking the plastic pollution example, if in the very beginning of time when plastic was first invented, somebody said, 
you know what, it's our constitutional right to have clean access to clean water and, and air and, um, and the environment in general. So therefore, there needs to be a circular system for this plastic system. You need to make sure that there's a proper recycling you know, metric in place. There cannot be a waste system where plastic goes to landfill, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but instead, you know, that there would have been a regulation in place to say, or there wouldn't have probably been any regulation in place in, in, place in the beginning for something like that. But you can see how, we, how that lack of innovation or the lack of forcing of innovation never came about because bad behavior was allowed right from the beginning. Exactly, exactly. And it would also be, you know, in, in that plastic context, the very first question would be, okay, we recognize that plastic creation is harmful. It, 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 you know, those plastics are fossil fuels, right? That's fracked shale gas, um, and which is devastating communities and is harmful to itself. So how can we, how can we um, carry our groceries and um, put drinks and foods in containers in a way that avoids the plastic altogether, right? Like the first thing is always about avoidance of harm. And so when you're talking about plastic, step number one is going to be how do we avoid how do we avoid even using it? What are the what are the other what are the other mechanisms for accomplishing those goals that don't require that highly polluting product? And you know, so you 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 just Start, as you said, in a very different way. And so you have to be innovating from the get-go because you're always thinking about the solutions to avoid harm rather than, you know, just how you're going to manage it. And that's the other thing, as you, as you were talking, I was thinking, like, how many times, you know, are people, when, 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 when they're concerned about their environment, they're concerned about something new that's going to come in and fill the wetlands or discharge pollution into the air or to the water, and they're told, well, no, no, no. You you have to accept that because you can't have food. You can't have transportation. You can't have power. You can't have the things that you want to have. Um, you can't have jobs unless you have pollution. <laughs> I mean, it's basically how it gets framed out to people. Is, and that's yeah. just the wrong premise. You can absolutely have energy creation in a way that doesn't devastate the planet. Um, but people are, people are shamed, right? And guilted or tricked um, into believing that, that pollution and degradation is just a necessary part of modern day life. Yes, absolutely. We, we have an impact, right? We, we do have an impact by being here on this earth, but the impact can be much more sustainable we can live much more in harmony with the earth in a way that protects these natural ecosystems that are fundamental to our healthy lives. None of us can live without healthy water and healthy air and healthy food. If all we have are contaminants all around us, then what happens is we get sick. And that's unfortunately what's happening you know, to, to too many people. Um, because we're not living sustainably, but it's all because we're all forced, we're, we're shamed into believing this false premise that we have to accept pollution and degradation at these high levels in order to have good quality life. And it's just absolute nonsense. Yeah, it's ultimately going to prove the opposite, I think. But now this feels like such, yeah. a, such a simple and powerful lever that, that the Green Amendment could pull. I mean, it's it's just surprising that we, it hasn't been pulled before. <laughs> what I, I'm curious about the pushback that you're seeing as to, and, and maybe that's an explanation as to why we haven't seen this come up, you know, in the past. Where, where are you seeing pushback when you go to these different states and you say, you know, we need to get this into the constitution? Where is the pushback coming from? Is it coming back from, from industry, from fossil fuel lobby groups? Like where, what, is, um, what does the opposition look yeah. like? Yeah, so you've you've named the opposition exactly. <laughs> um, um, it is it is industry. It is um, um, the fossil fuel industry. It is um, developers who don't want to do it the right way. See, and we really have to be. We really have to write. Um, we 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 have to separate. There are those who create energy. There are those who undertake agriculture. There are those who do development in ways that are absolutely devastating. And inflict all of these 
harms that we're talking about. And yet there are also, right, there are farmers and builders and um, sustainable clean energy creators that do it the right way. Um, and that's, you know, in, in every industry, there, there, there are always the bad actors, but there are also always those good actors that really want to do it the right way and are doing it the right way. Um, and so we, we hear from the bad actors. Um, and it is quite in, in, um, interesting. Usually, um, usually their, their arguments are very predictable and very silly. Um, <laughs> one is, well, you have to, you, you can't have that because you'll stop, you'll stop all economic development. We won't have any jobs and we won't have any economic development if you have a, if you have a green amendment. Um, which of course is nonsense because again, you can do, there's always a wrong way and a right way to do all of these things. So all we're saying is do it the right way, do it in the way that avoids the environmental harm from the get go, um, to the best of your ability, which is significant. Um, there, they, they, so that's a, you know, a, a, a quick answer. And, and it's been proven time and time again. For example, if you look at the energy industry for, um, Every million dollars invested in clean energy strategies versus dirty fossil fuels like coal and fracked gas, you create three to five times the number of jobs, right? So you create the energy you need, you protect the environment and people's health and healthy lives, and you create more jobs. And, and that's down the line in, in every industry. So um, if you care about jobs and economic development, you care about environmental protection. So that's a false argument. Then they'll, they'll say, you're, this is just a lawyer job creation effort. If you pass a green amendment, you're just going to have lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Um, and, and that's a horrible thing. Well, if you have lawsuits, um, that are victorious, then it actually was a good thing, right? Because something bad was happening to communities and human health and the environment that needed to be addressed. Um, so really the only lawsuits that anybody should be concerned about are frivolous lawsuits, right? Lawsuits that are brought forth on a false premise. Well, in, in the legal system in the U.S. and I'm pretty sure everywhere, there are always limitations on lawyers who bring frivolous lawsuits. They can be subject to sanctions. They can be subject to fines. They can, they'll make their clients very angry because they'll lose, they'll lose their cases and their clients will have to pay. Um, you know, people, lawyers can even put their licenses, their law licenses in jeopardy if they're pursuing all of these frivolous lawsuits. So to say that a green amendment is going to result in this onslaught of, of, of frivolous lawsuits is, um, is a red herring, right? Because there are other limitations on that. And again, to the extent that you have litigation that's successful, well, that means there was a problem and that lawsuit was pursued and resolved it. And so that, that's actually um, a positive thing. They then try to say, well, you're, you're saying people have the right uh, to clean air. What's clean air? Define clean air. <laughs> you say people have the right to a stable climate. What, what is that? How do you define that? Well, the thing is, constitutional language is, is broad. It's necessarily broad. That's the way constitutions were written, so that they can, they can help to um, broadly um, enumerate the rights that we're trying to protect and, frankly, be able to cover the things we know about, but also the things we don't know about, right? that are going to come in the future, right? We didn't know about the fracking industry, um, you know, decades ago, let alone hundreds of years ago when, when um, um, you know, constitutional language was being written. And it, so if you, if you write it too specifically, it's just a problem. It's not the job of the Constitution to specifically enumerate scientifically what clean water and clean air is, just like it's not the job of the Constitution to enumerate what is the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures? Well, what's unreasonable? You know, what's the right to free speech? What does that mean? Constitutional language is always broad. And so similarly, it will be broad with a Green Amendment. And then you get that definition through advocacy and through litigation, just like you get that further definition for every other kind of right that we have enumerated in our state and federal constitutions. 
And then the other interesting thing is that often legislators um, who are, you know, in the pockets of industry who are our opposition and the industry leaders who are our opposition, often what will be ha- what will happen is they will they will speak against the Green Amendment more quietly. They don't actually want to come out and be the public face of the legislator or the company that is against the right of children to drink clean water and breathe clean air. Um, So (laughs) that does create interesting dynamics. We had a hearing before the New Jersey State, um, a New Jersey State Senate Committee on the Green Amendment advancing in that state. And the room was filled with industry lobbyists. And none of them would testify against the Green Amendment. They made clear through the submission of their comments in writing that they were against the Green Amendment, but not a single person in that room had the courage to stand up and testify against the right to clean water and clean air. And the one legislator that we thought would vote against advancing the New Jersey Green Amendment rather than vote against the Green Amendment, he abstained. (laughs) So that's an interesting part of the dynamic, too, which really works to our advantage, because we all do need clean water and clean air. And who wants to be the person who's against that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just, it's just so ridiculous when you put it that way, isn't it? That it's even a discussion in the first place. (laughs) I know, it's absurd. It is. It's absurd. They should be embarrassed and ashamed. And I think they are. And that's why they don't speak out. Yeah, exactly. So may I understand that this movement is also not just about access to a healthy environment. It's also about equality. Can you share a little bit about how this could also be a powerful tool for justice in environmental disaster zones, such as Flint and Standing Rock, and also perhaps explain why these became environmental disaster zones in the first place? So green amendments are a very powerful environmental justice tool, as you as you said, because um, when you have a green amendment, every single person, regardless of the color of their skin or their income level or where they live, right, they all have the same right to a healthy environment. And government officials are duty bound. If your green amendment is properly written and framed in place, Government officials are duty bound to treat all the people equitably. They can't, um, they can't sacrifice one community in order to benefit another because they are duty bound to protect the environmental rights of all the people equitably. So we can't have those sacrifice zones. And a properly written Green Amendment includes the obligation to protect the environmental rights of future generations. So that also comes into play. You can't sacrifice um, the, the, the environmental rights of future generations in order to do what you want to do for the people who are here on the earth today. Uh, and it is true. The way that our laws are written here in the U.S. and I, and I suspect in so many other countries um, in the world, they are written very much um, not just to allow, but actually to advance the sacrifice of low-income immigrant minority and indigenous communities in order to allow for greater protection and benefits to the more wealthy, and frankly, here in in the U.S., to the wealthier and the whiter. Um, And that's simply, simply wrong, um, because there's a tremendous amount of power that is given to the regulatory agencies to decide where they're going to issue permits, where they're going to allow the industrial operators to pollute, and the way the laws are implemented, they are they are written and implemented in a way that that does sacrifice those with lesser access to power, and that is pretty much by ne- definition indigenous communities, minority communities, low income communities. And and that's the way it plays out. But a green amendment, a green amendment prevents those that 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 kind of sacrifice approach to communities. Because again, everybody has the same constitutional right to a healthy environment. And government officials are constitutionally duty bound to protect the environmental rights 
of all the people so they can no longer sacrifice one community in order to benefit another. Absolutely. So, so many folks out there would be feeling helpless and overwhelmed by climate and environmental disasters that we're facing. And you've already alluded to this, but what sort of specific things do you think folks could do, could get out there and do today to, to help make change? This may not be what you're driving for, but the first <laughs> thing I say is people have to think about the issue, the environmental issue or the, the aspect of the environment that most resonates with them. Do they care most about forests? Do they care most about fish? Maybe it's because they like to go fishing. Maybe it's because they just like fish. Do they care most about the birds? Um, right? What, what do they love wetlands? Do they love the beautiful flowers? Um, are they concerned about uh, the, the, the advancement of, of fracking and dirty fossil fuels? Like, what is the thing about the environment, good or bad, that most resonates with them? And then find a way in their own community to get involved in that issue, to maybe become part of, a, of, a, of an environmental organization that is planting plants in order to protect the butterflies because that person loves butterflies. Or maybe they are, they are concerned about forests and, so, um, and, and woodlands and wetlands. And so they should go and see what is happening in their own community and in their own town to either help or harm those ecosystems or those birds or those critters. And then they need to start to get involved um, and get involved in the government process. Write letters to the editor. Go to your local town meeting where you're given the opportunity to testify for the good or the bad. Again, get involved in that planting project. Find the thing that resonates with you and get involved. Now, final question for you. If anyone could find themselves feeling down or full of eco-anxiety, you know, if anyone has a has a right to feel that way, it's you, given all you've experienced. <laughs> but I get the sense that you're actually super optimistic. Why is that? Oh, because I really, I really believe in the power of people. And I really believe in the power of the earth. And I really um, think that people are, are genuinely good. And if they just understood what were the ramifications of, of not making the best decision, and if they just understood that there were better choices and better options, that they would that they would do it. Um, so it it can be hard. It can be down. But the truth is also, I feel like you know, what choice do I have? If I sit down and shut up, we've lost. So you know, really, the only option is to rise up and believe in people and believe in the power of, pe of the people and try to fight on to get the best to get the best outcomes. Because I truly, truly, truly believe that working together, we can get there. And I just love the beauty of nature so much. I love to see the trees and the flowers and the critters and the, and the rivers and the streams. And they are so beautiful when they're wonderful and healthy. And I just feel really good about being a part of the solution. So I, I just try to focus, focus on that beauty and that positivity and knowing that every night when I go to bed, um, I can feel proud about what I tried to do that day. Absolutely. Love that. And Maya, how can people out there support the Green Amendment movement? How can they support the work that you're doing and follow along with the progress? So we have a website, www.forthegenerations, F-O-R, not F-O-U-R, um, <laughs> www.forthegenerations.org. Um, on there, people will find a lot of information about what a Green Amendment is. Uh, and and if they are in a state where a Green Amendment is advancing, they'll learn opportunities for how they can get involved in the movement in their state. And if they don't yet have a state go, uh, have a Green Amendment advancing in their state, again, there'll be a, a way for them to get in touch with me. And we can talk and we can figure it out. And we can figure out how to advance a Green Amendment um, in in their state, and they can be you know part of the leadership team that inspires and and makes that happen. So, Very and cool. I really thank you, you know, opportunities like this to be able to, to talk with people about, about the Green Amendment movement and what I believe is just this transformational idea is so powerful and I'm so grateful 
and thank you. Thank you for helping me to spread the word. Absolutely. No, it's, a, it's such an education for me as well. I had no idea. You know, you, you grow up not really understanding how these things um, really play out in reality. So it's, it's a total, it's an education. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to say that for anybody wanting to learn more, they can, of course, read your book, right? Which is called The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Environment. And that's available everywhere on Amazon as well, yep. presumably. It's available everywhere and on Amazon, or they could go to forthegenerations.org and they, you know, go get uh, get connected with an independent bookseller or from our from our organization. Um, and I do just want to add, you know, how you were saying, my, I never really thought about it. I never really thought about it. I say that in my talks to, to people all the time. I said, how many times throughout your lives did you learn about your right to free speech or freedom of religion? And then think about how many times throughout your lives, all the way through your education, did you learn about your right to clean water and clean air? Right. And they sort of look at me. I said, yeah, you never learned about it. You didn't learn about it because you didn't have it. And you still don't have it. And that's what we're working to change. Absolutely. Very cool. Uh, that's, uh, that sums it up really nicely. So, Maya, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and experience with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, of course, as I said, an education. We look forward to seeing the right to a healthy environment become honored by governments all over the planet. Thank you. Wouldn't it be amazing if every constitution included the right to a healthy environment? We hope you found this discussion useful and perhaps inspiring enough to get involved and fight for your right to a healthy environment. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time.